I mean, so this is one of the most fun weeks out of the year, certainly one of the most uh, exhausting, but, but totally worthwhile. And I just want to say thank you to all of you who have already participated in getting this place ready, all the way from Michelle, who's been putting in like 80-hour weeks just to get this all set up, to uh, Sherry Markley, who actually hand-painted all of these panels here. Yeah. And then she set them up by herself. I'm actually, Sherry, I needed to talk to you. I'm actually thinking of turning my van into a Woody. So if you, um, I think that'd be really cool. Anyway, so in, 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 for the next five days, we are going to have more than 70 kids who are going to be in this room hearing the gospel, which is just super exciting. But even just as exciting for me is the fact that a lot of you are going to be spending the week with us, investing the time and energy and your hearts into loving on these kids outside of your comfort zone. I know for many of you, this is pushing you beyond that comfort zone, and I'm really grateful for that. But as I've been thinking about this week, the thing that just keeps coming back to me again and again is my fear that, that this would overshadow the real point of this week, that they would get focused on the trimmings, on the set pieces, and miss out on the, the real heart of what this week is about, which is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, because this won't transform anybody's life. Yes, it's exciting. Yes, this keeps 70, you know, like six, seven, and eight-year-olds occupied and keeps their attention, but this will not alter the trajectory of their lives. The gospel will. And as I think about this, I begin to think about how my life has been informed by the people who have invested in and, and, and the messages that I've heard and the ways in which it has been translated. And, and one of the things I recognize is that sometimes we can spend so much time on the big picture stuff that we forget or we, or we get focused on the wrong things. So many of the Old Testament stories are like that for me, probably because I was taught mainly through flannel graphs. Right? And for those of you who are new to the church, you missed out on flannel graphs because flannel graphs are phenomenal for telling stories. You can put a person up there, Adam and Eve, and they're like, and then you get to slap fig leaves on them, and then uh, fun stuff. And, and flannel graphs are perfect for telling stories, they're perfect for building big, elaborate set pieces really easily, but they're lousy at getting to nuance. I mean, because think about some of the stories that you have grown up knowing about, and you'll begin to realize that you've been more focused on the set pieces than on the heart, right? I say Joseph, and you think of his technicolor dream coat, right? The coat of many colors. There you go. Or Daniel. What about Daniel? What do we know about him? Spent the night in a lion's den. I think about the, um, the disciples. I mean, these guys were supposedly professional fishermen, but they didn't even know which side of the boat to fish on until Jesus shows up and tells them where, right? So, and then the biggest one for me, the biggest one that I got focused on the set piece more than anything was Jonah, or, or as we've come to know it, Jonah and what? And Jonah and the whale. The whale is just a momentary part of a much larger story, and yet that's the part we focus on because it's the set piece. It is a really cool one. This guy got to spend the night, three nights, in the belly of a whale. That's crazy. And yet that is absolutely not what the story is about. And if we get focused on that, we miss the heart of it. So if you would, today as we're wrapping up our transitions series, 
we're going to focus on the story of Jonah, which is a histor- historically, this is taking place around the same time as the divided kingdom. It's mid-700s B.C., and we're going to dive in there. So if you're looking for Jonah, it's a really short, there's only four chapters of it. It's kind of sandwiched in between Obadiah and Micah. So if you find yourself in like Isaiah, Jeremiah, keep going right. If you find yourself in the New Testament, go left. And it's just in one of those minor prophets. A little bit of background for us, though, before we dive in. Jonah was a prophet that lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how after Solomon's son Rehoboam tried to lay down the law, the kingdom of Israel got divided into the northern kingdom, the top ten tribes, and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, Jonah is from the northern kingdom of Israel. And throughout Israel's history, there was a nation that had become their nemesis, and that nation was called Assyria. It was a nation that was about 500 miles to the east, and they were a barbaric, pagan nation that wanted nothing more than to conquer the world. And they did it, and and they were joyful and gleeful in how barbaric they were in doing so. They would not only conquer a territory and tear down all of the cities and slaughter all the people or take them into slavery, but they would sacrifice their victims to their gods, and then they would build monuments celebrating their barbarism. And any self-respecting, patriotic Israelite wanted nothing more than for this nation of Assyria to cease to exist. For God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, to just wipe them off the face of the earth. They wanted nothing more than that. But in the opening verses of Jonah, we hear God's heart. So if you'll start here in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So go to the capital of Assyria and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And you read that and you go, oh, good. So God is finally going to raise the roof, right? No. What he's saying is, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and warn them that because of the choices they've been making, I am going to bring destruction on them if they don't repent. And Jonah's thinking, wait wait a minute, did I hear you correctly? You want me to go warn our sworn enemies, the ones that continually take our children into slavery, the ones that continually revel in bloodshed. You want me to go warn them? (laughs) I don't think so. Thanks. In all due respect, forget you. And so Jonah, rather than traveling the 500 miles east up to Nineveh, he goes down to the port town of Joppa and he books a a ticket on a ship going in the opposite direction into the west. Can we throw up the the slide here for a second? The map? All right, so you got Joppa there. That's the middle dot, which is to the right. Nineveh is 550 miles to the right. Tarshish, where he got a ticket for, is 2,500 miles to the west, as far in the Mediterranean Sea as he could possibly travel. In other words, God, I know you want me to go warn them, but I'm not your man. Instead, I'm going to go the other way so you'll forget about it, because I don't want this to happen. I would rather them be destroyed. Well, you guys know how the story goes, right? Jonah gets on the ship. They set sail. 
Very shortly into this, a, a storm rolls in. The waves start to grow. The guys on the boat who have been, who've endured many, many storms on the Mediterranean begin to get a little nervous because it's getting crazy. So they, they begin throwing the tackle and all of the, the provisions overboard to try to lighten the load, and it's not enough. And they begin to cry out to their gods. Nothing's happening. Then they, they, they roll the dice to see, well, who might it be on our ship? Let's cast lots and see if we can identify who might be responsible for this. The lot falls to Jonah, and they go, well, where is he? He's downstairs sleeping it off. So they run downstairs, and they wake him up, and they go, Jonah, what's going on? And Jonah looks around at the wind of the waves, and he goes, this is my fault. Guys, I'm running from my God. He told me to do one thing and I didn't want anything to do it. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I've tried to run from him. And they go, well, what should we do? And he says, if if you want the storm to subside, you just need to throw me into the water. And they're like, we are not going to incense a God that can do this by throwing in the water. So, well, if you want to survive, he's angry at me. Throw me in the water. So they say... God of, of, you know, God of Jonah, please do not bring your wrath upon us for taking this innocent man's life. And they throw him overboard. And no sooner does he get into the water that the wind and the waves begin to subside. And this boat limps back to port. And meanwhile, there's Jonah bobbing in the waves, recognizing that he has brought this upon himself and that he deserves to drown for his rebellion. But that's not how the story goes. Because God sends a great fish. Well, wait a minute. Is it a fish? Is it a whale? It's not clear in the Hebrew language because quite honestly, it just keeps it wide open. It doesn't matter. It's just a large fish. And, and I think we've been informed by uh, Pinocchio, right? It's got to be a whale because it swallowed Pinocchio. It happened before. It probably happened to Jonah. Just a large fish of some sort goes and swallows the guy up and he spends three days in the belly of the fish crying out to God just acknowledging God's goodness and his mercy. That's the entire part of chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer to God from the belly of the fish, which must have smelled wonderful. And then after three days hanging out in there, he gets thrown up unceremoniously onto the shore back near where he began. And as he crawls out of the surf and he stands up and he begins to try to wipe the digestive juices that he's been stewing in for three days that probably bleached his skin and his hair white, As he's walking up, trying to get the stuff off of him, he hears God's voice again. Jonah, go to that great city of Nineveh and warn them that because of their choices, I am going to bring my wrath upon them. Now, Jonah might be resistant, but he's not stupid. He knows that if God's going to use a storm and a fish to turn him around, that he's not going to win this battle. And so he reluctantly begins to trudge east to Nineveh. And when he gets there, he spends three days walking throughout the streets of Nineveh. It's a large city, so it takes him three days to go through there. Thankfully, he keeps his message very short. Here's here's the entire message that he begins to preach. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Then he goes to the next part. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. You think that's short? In the original Hebrew, it's five words. Obviously, Jonah's not all that interested in them actually, you know, listening and responding. He's doing this because he's being forced to do this. And after three days of going around preaching this very rousing message of destruction, he trudges back outside, walks up a hillside overlooking the city, builds a little lean-to to keep him from, from the sun, sits down, folds his arms, and waits for the fireworks. 
All right, I did what I was told to do. Let's find out what you're going to do, God. While he's sitting there, go ahead and jump down to the end of chapter 3. While he's sitting there on the hillside waiting for God to bring destruction. We read this in verse 10. When God saw what they did, because here's what ends up happening. Unfortunately, from Jonah's perspective, fortunately for the Ninevites, the message that he preaches, despite its brevity, gets through to them. They actually listen. And everybody from the king on down to the commoner begins to repent. The king actually issues an edict. Anybody in my kingdom must sit in sackcloth and ashes. You must fast for the rest of this this period as we beseech this God of Jonah to relent. You're going, well, why on earth would they listen to a guy going around? In 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. Why would they listen to him? Historically speaking, because let's not forget, this may be a story written in the Bible, but it is also a historical moment that actually took place. Some 10 years before Jonah was there, in 765 B.C., and then again six years later in 759 B.C., there were major um, outbreaks, uh, people getting sick and dying in Nineveh. They had already been pre prepared for what God was going to do. And so when he began to preach in 40 days, you're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. They listened. And so they responded. And the king says, we will fast and we will beseech this God of Jonah. Chapter three, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This is great for the Ninevites. Jonah, not so much. Now, if, if the point of Jonah, as I have heard it, this is the story that I grew up hearing. This is what I understood the story to be. God calls a prophet to go preach to a people. He doesn't want to. He runs the opposite direction. God uses a storm and a whale to get him to go over there. He finally goes and preaches. They repent. End of story. Yay, God! We win! And if that's the point then the book of Jonah can end right there. But the author who, who took this story and put it down on paper didn't stop with the Ninevites re- responding. There's a chapter 4. And chapter 4, although I never heard it taught when I was a kid, and I've never heard a message on it, chapter 4 is the point of the entire book. Everything else is set piece, is preparation for chapter 4. And so today we're going to spend a few minutes leaning into chapter 4 because the Ninevites respond. They repent. God relents. But now chapter 4 zeroes in on Jonah because the point of, of the book of Jonah is not about God reshaping the hearts of a pagan people. The point of the book of Jonah is about God's attempts to reshape the heart of his reluctant representative, Jonah. That's the whole point. He is resistant to what God wants to do. And God is trying to teach him that everybody, not just Jews, everybody matters. Chapter 4, verse 1. After Jonah sees that God relents and does not bring the wrath and destruction that he had promised on the Ninevites, Jonah, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he was angry. 
And so he prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, that you're slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So, Lord, just take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live in a world where you forgive Ninevites. Right? He's angry. He's resentful. He's like a kid who feels like, his little brother got an ice cream cone when he was naughty and he didn't deserve one. And so he's going to sit down and pout while he's up on his hillside. And God goes, okay, my boy does not understand grace. He doesn't even understand his part in grace. I've got to do some teaching. As my, my buddy Mike Erie used to say, God is a God of props and he uses props in order to teach difficult concepts to grasp. And so in this instance, God chooses to use a prop as a foil for what he's really going to try to teach him about his heart of compassion towards everybody. And so as Jonah is sleeping in his little hut, God causes a vine to grow up and it, and it grows very rapidly. God can make that happen. Apparently, I can't in my backyard, but God can make anything grow. God causes this vine to grow up over the shelter. And in the morning, there are large leaves that are just kind of providing extra shade in Jonah's hut. And he looks around and he goes, oh, I like that. That's nice. Yeah, thank you. And he begins, as, as the day wears on and the sun gets hot and he's enjoying his extra shade, he begins to take it for granted. Like, yeah, I'm doing your work. Of course I should have this shade. Well, that night, God sends a worm, and the worm chews through the vine. And by the time that he wakes up in the morning, all of those nice leaves that he had taken for granted have shriveled up, and now Jonah is angry. <gasps> Seriously? You're going to take this away from me, God? What more do you want? First you forgive them, now you take my vine away. And God now speaks. <laughs> and then Jonah kind of sits down like sulking. And God is looking over him like a father with a kid who's pouting and going, are you kidding me right now? Like, you don't get this? And we start, let's, go, let's jump down to verse 9. So God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about this plant, Jonah? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. We don't grow up. Verse 10. But the Lord said, and pay attention, because here is the punchline. Here's the point of the entire book of Jonah summed up in two verses. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, despite the fact that you didn't tend it and you didn't make it grow. You did nothing to cause this to come into being. And yet you're upset about this. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But shouldn't I have concern for this great city of Nineveh in which there's more than 120,000 people who can't even tell their right hand from their left? Shouldn't I be concerned about people who have been created in my image? Shouldn't I have compassion on them even though they don't understand right from wrong? And that's how the book of Jonah ends. Wait a minute, what happens? Like, how does Jonah respond? Does he ever change his heart? That's the point. It's left open-ended. Because the book of Jonah is written not just about Jonah, but it's written to a people who are reading this and recognize that they, like Jonah, have the same heart towards other people. The Israelites had been redeemed out of slavery. God had made them his own people, blessed them, led them into a beautiful land flowing of milk and honey. 
to a place where they inherited estates that they didn't build and vineyards that they hadn't planted. And God said, I have blessed you, but not just for your own well-being. I have blessed you in order to be a blessing. I haven't just called you to be my people. I've called you to be my representatives. A holy nation set apart so that the rest of the world, when they look at you, will recognize how great your God is and will submit to me. Because at the end of the day, my heart is for everybody, not just for you. You're just my representatives. But they never realized that they'd been blessed in order to be a blessing. Like Schmeagel with the ring, they began to hoard it and hide it and hold on to it for themselves and begrudge anybody else who might try to take hold of the blessing that they had been given because they were God's people. They were the chosen people. And God uses the, the, the author of Jonah by pushed along by the Holy Spirit as he's writing, writes this thing to people like them. And then for people like us, because let's be honest, we're a lot like them as well. Oh, sure. We all know and have tasted the fruit of grace and it's good, right? All of us like Jonah have gone astray. All of us have rebelled against what we know God is clearly trying to lay on our hearts. We've run the opposite direction. And all of us know that we are worthy to drown in our sin. But God in his grace sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And because of that, we have inherited a new hope. We have been given a new lease on life. We have not been called sinners. We've been called saints. We have not been called outcasts. We've been called sons and daughters because of his grace. And it's amazing. But then he said, I haven't just called you to hold on to that and hoard it yourself. I have called you to be my representatives to the world around you, to your neighbors, to the city in which you live and reside and beyond it. I've called you to reflect my heart to others. And we're okay when God wants to extend that grace to people we like. But what about, what about the Ninevites in our lives? What about the, the religious extremists that turn terrorists, that not only take innocent lives through bombs, but then revel in the death and destruction that it causes? What about the homeless crackhead that breaks into your car and steals your stuff just to get another fix? What about them? What about the closed-minded, small-minded people across the political aisle from you that are doing everything in their power to undo everything you know to be right? What about them? What about your neighbors? What about your neighbors that when you try to do something good and update your property, they keep calling code enforcement on you? <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, of course. What about them? The point of Jonah is this. We have a choice. We have been given grace that we don't deserve. That's the point of grace. Unmerited favor. Forgiveness that we haven't deserved. But are we going to begrudge it other people who equally don't deserve it? Because let's not forget we don't deserve it. And we have a choice. Do we get angry and upset like Jonah and throw a tantrum when we see people getting God's grace that he wants to lavish on them? Or do we celebrate that we have a new brother or sister in Christ? 
Now, of course, we're talking about this. This is, this is the heart that we've been called to have as God's ambassadors, his representatives in our community, in our spheres of influence. But what does this actually look like playing out in real life? I'm not going to tell you about it this morning. I want to invite my friend Matt to come up. This is Matt Swida. And he, he, say hi to Matt. Hey, buddy. Grab it. Uh, so Matt and his family, he's got a, a beautiful wife, two sons, and a brand new daughter. Yeah. You're not sleeping much, so I appreciate you being here early. Um, and I know that God has been teaching you and your family about this. So would you share a little bit yeah. about how he's been doing that? Yeah, I'd love to. Good morning, guys. How you doing? I think the book of Jonah is like the perfect book for Pastor Eric. Have you guys ever seen how fast this guy swims? Like. Like if it was if it was the book of Eric, I think it would have a different story. He would do, he would do circles around that fish or that whale. All right. Uh, super excited to be with you guys. Super humbled. Um, my wife and I actually live in the city of Irvine. He, as Eric mentioned, we have two boys, Judah and Keller, and then our newest daughter, Josie. We uh, I, I gave my life to the Lord uh, 12 years ago. And just like any new Christian that wanted to learn the ways of Jesus, I began doing all of the spiritual disciplines that you're probably aware of. I learned quickly how to begin praying. I learned uh, that I should probably join a small group or a, you know, a study group. I learned that I should begin serving in my church. And just all of the different things that, wanted, that I wanted to do to learn what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Well, as I studied the scriptures in my first year to two years, I began seeing myself a little bit discontent. And that discontentment was when I would read different things like in Matthew chapter 9 of Jesus and how he would eat with tax collectors and other reputable sinners. And then I would see the early church and how they would live their lives. And I began thinking, I don't really do this. I don't really do this. And it left a discontentment with me. Fast forward a few years, I went on a mission trip to Haiti. To Haiti. Has anyone been on a mission trip in here? Okay, cool. Went on a mission trip to Haiti right after the earthquake in 2010, and I found myself living a different lifestyle. I don't know about you guys, but I was more courageous whenever I was on a mission trip. I was being bold in my faith and sharing my story. I was sharing the gospel, and I found myself praying on the streets for Haitians, and it was just awesome. I just had this amazing experience. And then we flew back in to LAX, and I landed, and then life went back to normal. I began selling houses again, and I began not being bold in my faith. And there it was again, that discontentment, that disconnection between that lifestyle I was seeing in the scriptures and that lifestyle I was in in Haiti and the lifestyle I live today. And in that moment... God really spoke to me, and it, it sounds so simple. I'm going to share it with you. It, it sounds so simple, but for me, it was profound. It changed my life. It changed the trajectory. It was this. I learned that I wasn't a missionary when I went to tr- my trip to Haiti. I became a missionary when I put my faith in Jesus. When I decided to follow Christ with my life, he's given me a new identity, and he's given me the identity as a missionary because we serve a missionary God. The famous theologian Charles Spurgeon said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So I began asking myself this question, what does that even mean? 
<laughs> I know what it looks like to be a missionary in Haiti, but what does it mean here in Costa Mesa? What does it look like to be a missionary for us in the city of Irvine, where we live? So a couple years ago, my wife and I, uh, we moved into the city of Irvine. We rent a place there, and my son and I were walking to the neighborhood park. He was three at the time, and we were walking down our street, and I look over to my right, and I see this house there, and it's the house, you're familiar with these types of houses. By the way, I live on the other side of the tracks in Irvine. This isn't your typical Irvine community. It has a little more character. Can I get an amen? <laughs> uh, so I look over at this house, and the weeds have grown up. There looks like a car that's been there for years, had flat tires. There was a sofa there. The fence had fallen down. And I look over, and I find myself kind of like Jonah, getting pretty frustrated What's going on with this person? Why aren't they taking care of their stuff? Went to the park that day, came back, looked over again to my left this time. I'm like, kind of just shaking my head. Whatever. Next couple weeks, found myself in that same position, doing it over and over again. Like, what are you, just take care of your house. What is wrong? And in that moment of my frustration, like Jonah, I felt God's whisper reminding me that he loved the person that lived behind that door. And so over the next couple weeks, I said, well, what if I began to get to know this person? What if I learned this person's story? And so I met Omid, my 55-year-old Iranian neighbor who began coming over to our house. We invited him over for dinner, invited him over for breakfast and to different parties and began hearing his story about how he was single, about how he has investigated all different types of religions. He practiced Islam and how the economy sent him in a very tough situation and he wasn't able to make some of the uh, repairs in his house. And so one day I'm just thinking to myself, Omid, I was talking to him. I said, would you allow me to serve you? He goes, serve me? Why? How? And I go, well, my God tells me that I'm supposed to love him with everything I have and love my neighbor as myself, and I would just love to serve you. I w- it would be my honor. And he was reluctant at first, and then he finally said, yeah, I, I could use some help. And so uh, we captured a little bit of the story, and I brought that for you guys. A couple months back, I met my neighbor, Omid, and learned immediately that uh, there were some things that he was challenged with at his house. And so he had said that the city had contacted him and said that they asked him to basically fix his fence because it, was, it had fallen down. I just asked Omid, I said, what do you need help with around, and around your, your yard? And he said, well, I need a new fence. Um, I need a new gate. I need help with some of the overgrown bushes and the shrubbery. My wife and I don't lead the life group. Um, however, we're thinking about it and praying about it. And we said, well, what if we suggested to the group to serve Omid as a serve experience? And so um, I just brought it to our life group and I said, hey, what, what do you guys think about serving one of our neighbors? And everyone was pretty receptive. And so we just basically linked arms as a group and said, let's spend the entire day just blessing him and helping him out with his landscape. It really helped us realize that there are needs right here in our own backyard. 
when we think of being missionaries or going and serving, sometimes we even think about going across the world. But the reality is, you know, God calls us to people right here, uh, right next door. Testing. There we go. So as you can see, my life group and I were there uh, from 7 a.m. to about 1 p.m. on a Sunday morning, and Omid ended up eating lunch with us. But it was around 10 a.m. that morning that I have like a rake in my hand, and he comes by, and he says, Matt, why are you here? And I said, what do you mean, Omid? We, we talked about this. And he goes, no, why aren't you at church? It's Sunday morning. And I said, Omid, and I looked around at my life group, and I go, this is the church right here. And he goes, I'm ready to hear about Jesus again. <laughs> so I put down my rake, and I talked to him about my faith in Christ. And I said, Omid, what do you think? Do you believe this? He goes, I'm not sure. And I go, well, let's talk about it. Let's, let's begin thinking about this together. And so for the next three months, we spent every Wednesday morning through the winter in my neighborhood park walking through the book of John together. And every day I would ask him, do you believe this? And he's like, I'm not sure. And so eventually we plugged him into what we call Rooted at our church is a Bible study uh, discipleship program. And he went through Rooted for 10 weeks. And about six months after we ended up serving him that day. We ended up doing a celebration at Rooted, and we celebrated like this with Omid. Omid! So here's the thing. Here's what I want you guys to hear from me. I am not this amazing, outgoing evangelist. I'm an introvert. <laughs> but I know my identity in Christ. And I know my call to be intentional and to be on mission because God calls us, us all to be on mission. You guys are salt and light of the earth. I don't, I don't think you come to Lighthouse every Sunday morning. I think you are the lighthouse whenever you go back into your communities where you live, work, and play. I believe that. So my encouragement for you, just like with me and my frustration with Omid and many other neighbors, begin leaning into that frustration and ask where God is working in it because I promise there might be Omids right now in your lives and your Ninevites that are just waiting to understand the hope you have in Christ. Amen. All right. So, so let's say that there's some people in here going, yeah, you know what? I need to, I need to start loving on my neighbors. Um, 
I'm ready to take that next step. What, what can they do and kind of say, I'm in, I'm willing to like kind of self-select into this? Yeah. So we partner with an organization called Trellis here in the city of Costa Mesa. And we've actually helped create a challenge for all the churches in Costa Mesa who want to just take that, that risk, take that faith step and go, you know what? I have some neighbors that I don't know, and I would just love to get to know them. And we're calling it the Summer Challenge. So you have some cards in your chairs in front of you with, that look like this. If you would like to take the Summer Challenge and just get to know three new neighbors, that's it. Get to know them through coffee or eating with them or just understand their story. We are um, inviting you into that. So just fill this out, and you can actually leave it into the offering box whenever it passes by. And we want to just challenge you to get to know your neighbors. Yeah, and I think we're going to need some more of those cards. because in spouses, you guys can share one today so that we have enough. Uh, now, now, those are the, for people who are ready to jump in. But what about those of us who are like, I don't know. Like, I, that's fine for you to do. God obviously had an anointing upon your heart for Omid, but... But me, you know, you don't know me, and I don't really know how to proceed. What is a, a next step we could take that's not like, I'm going to go and baptize my neighbor tomorrow. I just want to kind of get a little bit more information and training on this before I try to jump in. Yeah. Well, in two weeks on Saturday the 29th, mm-hmm. we're doing what we're calling Ned Talks. You've heard of TED Talks? Well, this is Ned Talks. Neighbor engagement discussions. We're flying out a gentleman from Colorado. He wrote a book called Staying is the New Going. We have six other speakers. This is going to be in Irvine. Basically talking about this idea of how do we reach a culture around us where we live, work, and play. What does it even look like? How does it feel? And so each speaker is going to have 15 minutes, and then we're going to break into what we call NED discussions. And so we're inviting churches to come with groups of people to begin just processing this idea of what does it look like to make disciples in a culture that is changing around us and so um yeah we we would love to have you guys and just come out and get equipped um lunch is available or we're gonna have lunch child care is available we've made it pretty easy awesome and so so here's my uh encouragement to you this is two weeks away and 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 i know in talking with matt the the speakers are great and they're going to be about 10 to 15 minute conversations for each of these. So this isn't going to be like 45 minute, get talked at, and then a couple of minutes break in between. It's 15 minute message and then a, another 20 minutes around the table just talking about how can we do this. And I want as many of us in this church sitting around tables together brainstorming how can we love on our community? How can we love on our neighborhood? So here's my commitment to you. I was talking about Don, with Don about this this morning. It's $20 a person. That's the entire day's thing, lunch, and then if you need childcare taken care of. If you sign up today, we'll cover half the price. It'll be $10 for you to go and, and become more trained to love your neighbor. All right? I want to get as many of us there as possible because I believe that this will be a stepping stone to helping us love our community and being a house of light that doesn't just sit here kind of hoarding the light but actually shines in the darkness. And so I'm in, and I want to know what you guys are in. All right? Is that fair? Cool. So if you want to sign up for this, at the back table, Matt will be back there answering any questions. We have these half-sheet information things, um, and you can just sign up for your spot, secure it today. All right? Matt, thank you so much for being here, brother. I really appreciate it. I'm going to invite Robin and the, the worship team to come forward. One other thing I just want to share with you as they're coming forward, because this is just too exciting not to share. Um, 
Sometimes the people that God calls you to love and to reach towards are not those outside. They're people near and dear to your hearts. And, and last Sunday, um, Jeff Blum actually came up and was praying with Jeff Lee about uh, his father-in-law, 86 years old, has staunchly resisted Jesus his entire life on his deathbed, basically praying, begging to die, so much so asking the doctors to allow him to assist in his suicide because he wants to be done. He wants to go. He doesn't care what layer of hell he was going to go to. He just wanted to go. He wanted to be done. Jeff is going, I don't know what to do, but would you just pray for him? Jeff prays for him. And Jeff goes, maybe you should, you know, see about getting Pastor Eric or myself to come out and talk to your father-in-law. And so on Wednesday, Jeff calls me up and goes, hey, can you, can you maybe come talk to him? Pam is already with her father. We, so Jeff and I drove over to the hospital. And for the first half an hour that we were there, I kid you not, every single person that worked on the entire floor came into his room and was just doing, hey, we, had, we came to fix the light. And I'm like, are you kidding? Hey, we're going to try to get the, the, the IV going for the seventh time because it hasn't been working. And it was just like everything was stacked against this man and us being able to have a conversation that meant something. Finally, we just kind of cleared everybody out. Even told the doctor, listen, we're trying to share the gospel with him. Can you kind of give us a little bit of space? Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. He takes off. (laughs) We had a conversation with him. And ultimately, I'm just going to cut to the chase. On Wednesday, Pam's 86-year-old father prayed to accept Jesus Christ into his heart. And this morning at 2.30, without the assistance of any doctors, he went home to Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we have. And, And it is never too late. So may we continue, may you continue to do what Jeff does and don't give up. May you continue to do what Pam has done and continue to pray for her father. May you continue to pray for the people in your life because they may have resisted their entire lives, but it's never too late. So, Father, we we give you today, and we just want to respond now, saying, here is our lives. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. We don't know how to do it. We don't know the right words, but you do. And you say, don't worry about the words. Trust in me, and I will show you what to say. And at the end of the day, God, it is not our job to save a single person. Only you can do that. Our only task is to point them to you and let you do the rest of the work. So I thank you that Tom is with you now in heaven. And I thank you for Omi, our new brother in the Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would help yourselves to our lives. That we would be willing, joyful representatives, not resistant ones. Let's worship together.